Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's June 27th, 2018, and uh, I'm Charlie Sykes. I'm actually broadcasting from Aspen, and uh, there was a, a panel yesterday about the media, and one of the panelists said that keeping up with the news cycle these days is an aerobic activity. So then uh, today is no exception. So Jonathan B. Last and Mike Warren of the Weekly Standard are joining me on a very, very busy day. Thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it. Always happy to be here. Thanks, Charlie. Well, the Supreme Court has been handing down some major decisions. Yesterday, of course, it was on the travel ban. Today, it was uh, a womp womp on public employee unions. Um, also, uh, the Democratic establishment takes uh, takes a huge uh, loss. Uh, number four member of the House leadership defeated in a primary by a Democratic socialist. I want to talk about that. But, but Jonathan, your piece is getting a lot of attention. And I want to talk about this because uh, that there's been a, a rather extraordinary and in many ways depressing debate that we're having in this country about whether or not we can afford to be civil. And as you point out, and and I, and I think this is kind of the, the heart of, of all of this is that, uh, this won't end well because political violence has always been just under the surface that 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 violence and confrontation you know are, are are not totally out of the norm in some ways this the sense of fragility and civility that that we 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 give lip service to is actually a pretty thin veneer in yeah. historically speaking yeah well this is you know to invert the 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 great Clausewitz line, uh, politics is just war by other means. And so this is why, you know, always and everywhere, uh, there is an undercurrent of violence within politics because politics is the art of coercion, right? I mean, this is what it is. And the, the, one of the great achievements of Western civilization is by having the consent of the governed, what you wind up doing is you say, people are just going to go along with this coercion. So long as it, it happens in a democratic way and in ways that people can, can sort of, you know, learn to live with. And uh, I don't know. I mean, we in America, we always just assume, well, this is our birthright. It's always going to be like this. And historically, when you look around the world, and, and not just like going back 60 years, but going back like 15 years to Yugoslavia, uh, you know, first world country, a normal, uh, normal place uh, by our standards, uh, you see things spiraling out of control into violence. And uh, I don't know. I, I worry that we... What we have seen over the last 30 or 40 years, if you go back to the 70s, things were really bad in the 70s. People mm -hmm. forget that, I think. I and since then, we've had like 30 or 40 years where we have told ourselves that in America, politics just takes place between the 40-yard lines. You know, the, the stakes aren't really high. We all get along. We don't really let this stuff uh, affect us too much. Nobody's going to go around blowing up power stations, you know, to make political statements and stuff the way they did in the 1970s. Uh, but I don't know that that it, it sure looks to me like we're heading in that direction. Things are not as bad yet as they were in the 70s, but we're not at the end of this road and we're trending in that direction. You, you and I are getting some of this, the same reaction, I think, on social media. I had a piece on the, you know, the summer of jerkitude, you know, in your piece yet yesterday, uh, getting it from both ends. And a lot of it is the, well, you guys started it, and why should we be polite or civil when you guys aren't? There is a cascade of whataboutism going on out there. So let's let's go back. I mean, you, you can play this game almost endlessly, but, but you make a point about, you know, why some of us had anxiety about what Donald Trump was bringing back into the political dialogue, that he was kind of opening opening the box again. 
Yeah, and this is uh, what what I try to explain to people with this sort of thing is uh, if it bothers you to think about your team getting criticized, then just think about it. Pretend I'm talking about the other team then, you know, because the truth is uh, what I'm talking about is a universal human thing. It is not unique to either conservatives or liberals, to Democrats or Republicans. Uh, and the universal human thing is that people like violence when they think that violence is only them applying it to the people they don't like. And when one side is emboldened, uh, you know, if, again, if you're if you hate Donald Trump and, and would you know, let me speak to you for a moment and say, OK, so when you when you elevate Donald Trump, you are elevating and emboldening, say, the white nationalist types like Richard Spencer. Uh, but when those guys are emboldened, it isn't just them that it's emboldened. Right. It's then the, the radical, crazy, violent left, which gets emboldened along with them. Uh, and in that weird way, violence has an absolute value sign around it uh, when it comes to politics. Once once you start giving the practice of political violence, oxygen in society, it becomes very, very difficult to stop it. There is no rate limiting principle on these things. And the the depressing part is I don't even know that there's anything that the rest of us can do to stop it. Well, in, in, in terms of what we've been talking about over the last you know few days has been falling short of violence. You know, simply, you know, throwing Sarah Sanders out of a restaurant is not, you know, technically violence. Uh, even what Maxine Waters is talking about is is it, it may be the gateway drug uh, to political violence. But what I find fascinating is, is are the number of people who are willing to endorse this sort of uh, calculated uh, boorishness in, in the name of passion that they that they equate. If you are passionately indignant about these Nazi-like Republicans, then then how do you not? Act out in this yeah, particular way. Yeah, how do you not do it, Yeah, no, I, I hear and, that a lot. And, 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 and if you are reluctant to do that, then somehow you are a you're a Quisling or you're a a, a Chamberlain that that it is appeasement. So that civility and I'm I am seeing this on both sides. This notion that that if you don't scream and yell and have veins popping out of your head, you know that's a sign that you are uh, you're a cuck on the right and um, who knows what on the left. A wimp. Yeah, you're a fascist enabler on the left. I mean, this is I would say this is proving my point exactly. Yeah, uh, it is. Look, I would alibi the red hen people. I mean, in a weird way. The, the Ren, by all accounts, the owner of the Red Hen was actually quite polite when she asked Sarah Sanders to, li- to leave. What Maxine Waters did was different. And I, I do not think there is a reasonable way to view Maxine Waters' comments as anything other than incitement. Uh, and, and if she doesn't know that what she was encouraging people to do could end in violence, then she's a fool. And I don't think she's a fool. Yeah, I yeah. want to bring Michael Warren in on all of this because one of the things that 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 slightly puzzles me um, is is the are, are the number of folks on the left, the Democratic Party, and, and obviously Nancy Pelosi and uh, Chuck Schumer have spoken out against this. But the number of people on the left who don't really, I think, grasp how this will backfire that that uh, emulating Trumpism is not going to be a winning strategy for them. Right. It sort of plays exactly into uh, into the game that that Trump and his supporters uh, are playing. Uh, but I, I and, and I don't know. I mean, it's hard to tell. It's always it's always hard to say, well, OK, are, are um, more Republican voters in swing districts going to come out to vote in 2018 because of what Maxine Waters said? Um, I mean, it's hard to draw a direct line between those two things. But to JVL's point in his piece, um, what it does to the political culture 
um, uh, you know, it does galvanize these sort of things, these moments galvanize um, the opposition uh, in a way uh, that uh, that can have consequences. Um, uh, but I want to go back to something because I, I think mm-hmm. I agree with JVL's piece um, entirely. And um, uh, but but one point that he points out that you point out, Jonathan, is um, that w- what can we do to stop this is that you, you sort of have a pessimistic view of that. Um, but you look at these moments. Uh, you mentioned Maxine Waters. You also mentioned the Red Hen. Um, it, you're right that it wasn't the owner of the Red Hen who was really a bad actor here. It was the decision by somebody by by the person who had the influence, the, really the leader in this situation, which was Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She has a giant platform as the uh, top spokesperson for the White House and the administration. And it was her decision to announce this happen, happening. Um, it was it was which was just strip all all of it away. It was just irresponsible. And so what you have here, and I don't know if this plays into sort of the weakness of institutions, um, the lack of leadership. Uh, I do sort of ascribe to this idea that individual people in in positions of leadership um, can change uh, sort of these big uh, waves or these big uh, uh, gestures of of society and culture. Um, And I think what you're seeing here is people who uh, ought to be doing the responsible thing, whether that's uh, members of uh, political parties. You're seeing a little bit from Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, um, t- just stepping out there and saying this this is wrong. This is this has to stop, or making the decision that Sarah Huckabee Sanders ought to have made, which was not to, not to make a big deal of it, to not uh, uh, make this into a flashpoint. But of course, this is this is all sort of a part of a, uh, as you say, JVL, you know, a war that that political. Political figures seem to believe they are engaged in, and uh, and nobody seems to be. I mean, it sounds fuddy-duddy, and 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 makes me sound sort of like like uh, like a cuck, as uh, as the as the alt right might call it. But people ought to act, act a little more responsible, and people in well, leadership positions need to be doing. You're, that. You're, 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 you're right, and you you do have these two cultures, and you really get the sense that when you know that uh, the way in which Donald Trump has changed the political culture and and what is acceptable, uh, the. I don't know whether you guys have have have, have sensed this. Just the, the the coarsening of the discourse, you know, the 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 you know things that that would have been unacceptable now become a- acceptable. Uh, in, in, now, when 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 she put out that uh, that email, you know, you say it was irresponsible, and I I agree with you completely. But also, it was perfectly consistent with a lot of this new politics, which is to play the politics of victimization. The politics of victimization lead to outrage, which lead to grievance. And you know, how much of this, you know, how much of our politics is 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 this, you know, self-righteous indignation because I am a victim. And how much of the Trump message to his supporters is you people are victims. Now I I find this ironic because, you know, back in the 70s, not the 70s, <laughs> the 90s, I wrote a book called The Nation of Victims. Which talked about how everybody you know wanted to be a victim. Everybody could be a victim because it gives you moral authority, it gives you immunity from judgment. But to watch the right and elements of the right embrace this politics of victimization is really extraordinary, and it's very, very potent. Yeah, and this is so. My buddies over the po- commentary podcast, and and lots of my friends actually have said over the last couple of days. Uh, this is a big mistake for the left. The left does not want to be to become the red hen Maxine Waters party. Uh, that when the rest of America looks at this, they're going to say, "We don't want a world in which uh, normal people get shamed for you know going to dinner and and you know, normal political people 
go to dinner and we want we don't want the political sphere to be that big and all encompassing in America. And I'm not so sure about that, to be honest. Uh, I mean, we, if I had said to you 20 months ago, the American people don't want to elect a guy president who makes fun of disabled people, uh, we would have said, yeah, that's true. But it turns out that the American people totally wanted to elect a guy who makes fun of disabled people. Uh, the four of the last five presidential elections we've had have been base turnout elections. Uh, you know, the, the last two sort of run to the center, convince the undecided elections were 2000 and 2008. I don't know that we're going to see those again, mm-hmm. frankly. I mean, when, when you just sort of look at the dynamics of our politics and you look at how things are gerrymandered, uh, I, I actually think it's possible that we are moving into a world of all base turnout elections. And it is not clear to me that as a just as a practical political matter that the Sarah Sanders attack on the red hen and the Maxine Waters attack on the Trump people is is wrong. In terms of just uh, yeah, no, I, morally I, wrong, I, but just as a political play, it may be exactly correct that it turns out that voters really do want that red meat. They want a sense of heightened confrontation, uh, and they want total war. You know, Mike's uh, point. I want to go back to Mike's point about uh, the the sort of the role of of thought leadership here. The you know the responsible leadership that you're getting from 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 some folks, but you know th- this is where um, you know we leaders can can model the behavior. So uh, you know for the last thirty years, most leaders have modeled the behavior of yeah we do not cross these lines uh, because you know that way lies madness and and, and violence. But uh, but Trump and and some of his more extreme opponents have modeled the exact opposite. Opposite behavior, and and uh, you know that's why, JV. I, th- I think you know you might be right about all of this. That they are not only reflecting what has been latent out there in the electorate, but uh, that they're also giving it permission. They are giving permission uh, to to emotions and tactics that uh, that that might have in an alternative universe, you know, been allowed to you know been been pushed aside or been allowed to atrophy, but which are now being in, in encouraged and celebrated. Um, as as ways of of motivation. So, um, you know, and and I also think that it's it's important. You know, your your whole thesis that that political violence has always been simmering beneath the surface. In retrospect, and I think I may have said this a couple of days ago. And 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 the term undercovered story is does seem inappropriate, but it was only a little over a year ago that a guy with a gun shot and tried to kill a bunch of Republican congressmen because he hated their politics. Now, you know that if it had been on the other side, that this would have led to, um, you know, a generation's worth of candlelight vigils and seminars and, and introspection about all of this. But that certainly should have been a warning that these passions, uncontrolled, are going to lead to things that uh, that might have been routine, uh, you know, at one time, but which w- maybe we've become, you know, complacent about. And uh, to be honest, if this... If this doesn't happen again, I'll be I'll be stunned. Last week down in Florida, uh, a guy was arrested for threatening to kidnap and kill uh, Congressman mm-hmm. Brian Mast's kids because of immigration policies. Yeah, I mean, this is in a weird way. I, I actually find that even more disturbing than the, the Scalise shooting because like political violence is political violence. You know, the idea of like trying to assassinate political actors uh, while rare in America is not a, a new thing. Uh, Threatening to kidnap and kill a politician's kids over over political is is totally new. 
And uh, well, you, I don't you, know. I you'd mean, be, people you'd think be, that you'd be against being rude or kidnapping the children of Adolf Hitler during the Holocaust. Yeah, right. so exactly. The reason I mention that is all of this. Well, this this again is is how language really matters, and it's you know it's, you, you step back from all of this. Look, I think that the the policies at the border were absolutely horrific. I think they were cruel. I think they were were cynical. Um, I do think that there are, are really disturbing historical parallels, but. It is not the same as the final solution. It, these these camps are not concentration camps. They are not Dachau. They are not Buchenwald. We are not talking about this. But I noticed that when John Podoretz tried to make that point, okay, you can be against this, but it's not actual Nazism and Hitler, it was fascinating to watch how much blowback there was on that. But once you begin to create that as your mental image that we are dealing with actual Nazis who are committing the Holocaust, then, of course— violence and to forget incivility then of course violence becomes justified yeah and what people don't don't realize i think is that once once you justify violence on one side the other side's going to do it as well i mean this is what's hysterical to me is that like the left has spent like two generations talking about the cycle of violence earnestly and now they can't understand that there's a cycle of violence Okay, Michael, th- let's talk about things that are going to get people uh, passionate. Um, I want to talk about the uh, the Supreme Court decision in a, in a moment. How, by the way, shocked um, are people in Washington about the uh, the defeat in the Democratic primary of Congressman uh, Joe Crowley? Well, I think the the shock has been tempered a little bit. I think there was a there was a initial sort of whoa moment uh, last night when the the uh, returns were coming in for this for this race, and uh, Crowley, who had spent a lot of money, that had kind of stayed off the pages uh, of the major newspapers and, and news outlets, all of a sudden looked like he was going to lose. But I think in in sort of the light of day and 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 the sort of post game analyses. It's actually not that surprising um, when you look at all the factors that went into this. It doesn't make the achievement of uh, of, of oh, Alexandria. I'm going to get her name right here. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, um, 28 years old, uh, politi- first time political candidate. Um, uh, you know, winning this Democratic primary, um, but. Look, she is um, an Hispanic woman, uh, tw- 28, um, a former Bernie Sanders volunteer. Um, and she is much more representative. Again, this is the House of Representatives, much more representative culturally, racially, um, her age um, uh, of a district that sort of straddles the Bronx and Queens um, mm-hmm. than a, uh, a guy. It's an in Hispanic his, majority district. That, right? Exactly. It's a Hispanic. Yeah. It's, it's certainly majority minority. I, I, mean, yeah. I think almost all of them are Hispanics um, and uh, uh, much more so than a sort of machine uh, uh, white machine Democratic a Democratic machine politician in Joe Crowley, um, and, and so when you look at it that way, when you look at it uh, in terms of it's a very liberal, very progressive district. She is as far left as you can really be in uh, elected politics uh, so far, I guess. Um, it, it makes a little more sense, uh, but it, it does seem to be shocking a lot of people in uh, in the Democratic uh, conference because Crowley was seen as a possible, a potential successor to Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, the cliche is that all politics are local. But in this particular case, you're saying perhaps that's the way we ought to look at it, that, you know, you had dynamics in this one district. You had this, you know, one and, you know, we could say that I mean, she's, she's quite attractive. She was a very, very, very good candidate. Right. Um, this was really, you know, people trying to draw national, uh, you know, conclusions to somehow now the you know, the crazies are taking over, that the Democratic socialists are surging, you know, throughout the Democratic Party. 
that that is to read way too much into a a local district. You have a congressman that I think had gotten out of touch. Someone told me this morning at breakfast that they had a debate scheduled last week, and he sent a surrogate to debate her. That's right. That you know, you think in this particular day and age, you want a symbol of being out of touch with your district. You have a young woman, young you know Hispanic woman running against you, and you don't even show her the respect to show up and debate her. You sent a surrogate probably an indication that you had some of these local dynamics that that may not have uh, national uh, consequences. Well, okay, so the I'm sorry, you would, uh, I yeah. just want to add real quick and you can just see this or so the proof is in what happened elsewhere, just even just stick with the Democratic Party uh, in primaries, a lot of primaries across the country yesterday, um, and none of the other incumbent Democrats who had some progressive challengers Correct. and some younger challengers, none of them lost. So but I think that goes to to the point that we just made. Okay, can I, so can I yes. point out something hysterical? Did you guys did you guys see uh, the president's tweet about Crowley this morning? Oh no! Yes, I did not. I'm sorry. <laughs> President Trump tweets out that uh, big Trump hater Congressman Joe Crowley, who many expected was going to take Nancy Pelosi's place, just lost. In other words, he's out. Perhaps he should have been nicer and more respectful to his president. Not understanding that the. <laughs> Ocasio, who is replacing Crowley in this election, actually wants to impeach Trump. It's it's amazing. I, yes, uh, right, because the 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 president to be be nicer and kinder to the, the the president. Again, you know this. I've we've said this before, but you know Donald Trump's superpower is his complete lack of self awareness and sense of shame. I mean, it's remarkable. It's there's no there's no there's no part of him that goes. Yeah, you know, my calls for civility uh, might be ironic. It just passes. All right, now the biggest Supreme Court uh, decision of of the day, and this is going to have long-term implications at every level of government, I think, uh, is uh, the Supreme Court decision that uh, basically blows a huge hole in uh, public employee unions. As somebody from Wisconsin, um, we were watching this case with tremendous interest having gone through Act 10, and I want to talk about that uh, in just a moment. But today's Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, simple shopping, and uh, you really ought to try this out. These will be the most uh, uncomfortable, uncomfortable, the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, hoodies, sweatpants you will ever wear. They have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. You know, for example, a little bit later today, I'm going to go out and I'm going to try to walk around. I'm not going to climb any mountains here in uh, in Aspen, Colorado, but I'm probably going to work up a sweat because it's kind of hot here. And I will tell you that I'm going to be wearing some Mack Weldon stuff because otherwise, yeah, you wouldn't want to be around me. Uh, not only does their the clothes, are they good for working out, going to work, going out, just, just everyday life? Uh, they are really better than whatever you are wearing right now. Uh, really seriously. If you want to be comfortable, if you want to be comfortable, you ought to try them. And if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it, and they will still refund you, no questions asked. So, you know, I bought a whole range of the clothes. I can't even tell you what my, my favorite is. But, you know, you know, coming to a place like this where I, I want to be able to have uh, clothes that are flexible and that I can use to work out or go hiking or go, go biking, um, they are absolutely fantastic. So, again, uh, here's our special offer to listeners of the Daily Standard podcast. For 20% off your first order, Visit MacWeldon.com, enter promo code STANDARD at checkout. That's MacWeldon.com. Use promo code STANDARD at checkout for 20% off. All right, gentlemen, um, Mike Warren, uh, Supreme Court decision, not a huge surprise, but a major landmark ruling 
saying that public employee unions cannot force public employees to pay them agency dues. Yeah, it, it is not surprising, but it is big. Um, of course, this uh, at the end of the Obama administration, uh, this case, uh, a similar case was before the Supreme Court. Uh, Antonin Scalia died uh, before uh, any ruling was made, and uh, the, the court was deadlocked 4-4. So um, with Neil Gorsuch on the court, there was an expectation that, um, that it would go the way it it did, um, but I do think it's it, it does have um, some big consequences, and it is also a part of I think what we've been seeing uh, with public sector unions over the last uh, decade plus, which is um, you know you mentioned Charlie what happened in Wisconsin. Um, there seems to be. Um, a lot of factors going on here. First, it's the private sector unions have really been on the wane for 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 decades now, and public sector unions have sort of uh, picked up a little bit here. Um, some of the some of what uh, what private sector unions were doing, and it turns the out the center that, of gravity has really shifted from the private sector to the public sector in, in in American unionization. That's right, but it turns out that public sector unions are a real different animal, um, and uh, and really kind of come up against um, the American idea of uh, of free association and free speech. Um, and this is essentially what this case was uh, was decided on, that that uh, the, these lower fees for non-union employees uh, in, 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 uh, in, in places where a government uh, union exists, um, that these were essentially compelled speech uh, and compelling people who were working, uh, at, you know, in, in uh, police departments or in government offices in, in states like California or New York, um, who did not join their public sector union um, uh, should not be uh, compelled, even if they benefit um, uh, from uh, the union's uh, work, getting say better better hours or better pay or better benefits. Um, ought not uh, they, they ought not be compelled by the state uh, to pay anything, let alone. I mean, they, they really haven't been able haven't been able to force those employees to pay full union dues. Uh, but now they can't even pay these sort of lower um, uh, fees, essentially, for not joining the union. Uh, and this is, a, I think, a major decision that really does, uh, you can see it in the reaction from the left here, um, uh, that really does cut against public sector unions and really hurts them um, where, uh, where, well, it hurts them where it hurts. And, and, and they're quite right. I mean, I, I think that the principle here of, of not allowing compelled speech, not forcing someone to give money to support a political cause or point of view that, that they with which you disagree, I think that's a fundamental American principle. On the other hand, there's no question about it that um, this will have uh, tremendous implications for the public employee unions. We've seen what's happened to membership uh, in the public employee unions here in the state of Wisconsin. For the Democratic Party, they have been relying upon public employee unions to be the backbone of you know, many of their campaigns. And uh, the, this, this will have a tremendous uh, trickle-down effect, which again goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier. Uh, there's going to be a passionate uh, and emotional backlash to all of this. And again, now, not to play the Wisconsin card uh, too often, but uh, you know, we re- recall how that those massive protests uh, in in Madison and throughout the state of Wisconsin that was about public employee collective bargaining. That was really about this whole question about whether or not public employees should be compelled to join and pay dues to uh, public empl- to, to public employee unions. So 
um, this cycle is going to tick right back up again. And, and you know, uh, as Scott Walker would be would be able to tell you, a cornered dog, uh, in many ways, um, uh, can be the most dangerous. And I think that that is sort of where public sector unions are. I do want to just sort of mention very quickly, having skimmed the dissent, which was written by Elena Kagan uh, in the Supreme Court case, who I I think is the uh, sort of most eloquent of the mm-hmm. liberal justices and and makes the best arguments uh, in in these cases um, and uh, in many ways it's because she's been influenced um, uh, sort of alone among the liberal judges really influenced by um, the 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 originalist movement uh, started by uh, Scalia and Robert Bork mm-hmm. um, she makes I think the best argument which is still I, I don't think I don't think a convincing argument which is essentially that um, uh, you know, you if it, taken down to sort of the uh, atomized level here um you can you could always say that there's some kind of compelled speech with your money right if you pay if you if you buy uh products from companies or um uh, you, you you know you you uh, have to pay money uh, uh in in uh, various things to uh, health insurers or whatever i mean there's a lot of money um that goes to eventually um uh, eventually to fund some sort of political speech um i think that's uh, that is uh, probably the best argument that the the liberals had in this but it's, it's really not convincing because ultimately what what it comes down to here is uh, a question of um of, of sort of an American conception of individual liberty and the ability to choose uh, how your money is spent and 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 how to uh, how to speak out or not speak out uh, on on political issues and this is something that um, uh, the the shift in uh, toward public sector unions means there's so much more uh, sort of the, the state and the government um, uh, uh, sort of driving this and that really cuts against the First Amendment um, and ultimately I think the the conservative justice has made the right call. I, I, I agree with you. Um, let's get a quick update on where we are on, on the trade wars. Um, and, and again, since I've mentioned Wisconsin so many times, uh, uh, the president is at least scheduled to come to Wisconsin, uh, to go, go to Wisconsin later this week you know, to uh, break ground on the on the Foxconn deal. But also then he's going to be facing all kinds of questions about how, how his his tariff policy is affecting businesses in the, in the heartland, including this, I'm sorry, the pissing match that he launched yesterday against Harley Davidson, which is a big deal nationally, but it's a very big deal in in the state of Wisconsin. So give me your sense of where we're at here, whether or not uh, Trump has gotten a reality check and whether that's going to affect uh, his uh, his policy going forward. He seemed to soften some of his threats to go after China in the last 24 hours. Is is that a change of heart in any in any way? Jonathan, you want to take that? No, I want you to because okay. you've been all over this. <laughs> okay, great stuff. all right, I will. I'll, I'll keep on rambling here. Look, I think the Harley Davidson um, decision is really interesting, and you can look at the president's past uh, tweets. And really, the first tweet was so was so interesting, and he almost seemed uh, kind of hurt or or, or uh, confused, betrayed, betrayed, jilted. Exactly. No, no. I, I mean, it read as if you know a a, a, a girlfriend had uh, had just broken up with him, and um, and I think it's it, it goes. This is the really the first moment where. Um, a, a a company or something has happened that really cuts against um, his idea of what uh, of how tariffs work of how um, uh, the, the the sort of trade actions ought to go 
And now we see these tweets this morning um, really lashing out at, at Harley Davidson, a private company. Uh, I mean, Harley Davidson should, this is the tweet, Harley Davidson should stay 100% in America with the people that you that got you your success. I've done so much for you. And then this, other companies are coming back where they belong. You, We won't forget and neither will your customers or your now very happy competitors. Uh, I mean, just set aside the, the bizarre nature of uh, of the again the jilted lover uh, tone coming from that um, it's it, this is an American president really calling out a uh, a private business for making a business decision uh, going against what, the way he sort of conceived and I you know, I say he I think it's really him and uh, Peter Navarro he's kind of top uh, pro tariff uh, trade aid um, the the idea of what American companies ought to be doing but of course this is this is you're talking about a globalized economy where these companies um, have all sorts of different incentives and different decisions they have to make and it's actually really complicated and not that easy to manipulate and I think the president is in in his own special way is is realizing that now how does that okay, affect let, oh, go yeah, ahead let me, let me give you the contrary point it just, just, just you know float float this by that, that this still works with his base because you know he fights has been the you know has been the, has been the execution and yes he is he you know he's he's getting in touch with his authoritarian self he's beating up on a, a private business for making private business decisions but from a lot of the point of view of a lot of you know his his blue collar base you know here is the president of the United States demanding that a company keep jobs here in this country this does seem does not seem inconsistent with some of the message that that he's had ab- about trade now you and i an economist may say mr president you don't understand how this is actually working what the implications are going to be but it, you know, at least for the folks who are looking for him to stand up for them, this might be a political upside. Could it be? I, I suppose. Um, and you know, the 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 truth notwithstanding, right? I mean that that he's standing up to a company that's responding to his own policies. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of a weird. It's almost like this weird hostage situation. But I think you're right, uh, at least in the short term. Um, I wrote something for the Standard, uh, uh, sort of follow. Uh, I guess this was Tuesday. Um, following Monday night's uh, uh, speech in South Carolina where the president sort of made an offhand um, slap at BMW for um, uh, uh, for for that German car company's um, uh, shipping its cars into the United States. But of course, not that far up the road from where the president was speaking is the largest and most productive BMW plant in the world, which is in in a, in Greer, South Carolina, and makes every single crossover SUV that BMW makes is made there. A lot of jobs there. Uh, I, I wanted to just sort of point out the irony of that. And I got an email from a political operative in South Carolina, a Republican um, who is not not a full on board uh, a Trumper, uh, but uh, but this person sort of wrote back and said. Look, there's a difference between leadership at these manufacturers, not just BMW, but sort of secondary uh, manufacturers that that serve and service uh, BMW and some of these other big big guys. Um, they sort of agree with my analysis of things, but it's the line level guys. This person said that that are listening to sort of conservative talk radio, Fox News. They're very pro-Trump and they view this. And, and then he he sent me this morning uh, a uh, an article that essentially uh, confirmed what he was telling me from the Greenville uh, uh, newspaper that essentially had a bunch of uh, people in that area saying, you know, we love what Trump is doing. So uh, what do you what do you do with it? I don't know. But it's it, it, I think the reality might change when you really do see 
um, companies doing the Harley Davidson thing and leaving and jobs really disappearing. I hope that doesn't happen for those people's sake, but that the, the lesson might have to be uh, uh, one of uh, tough love. Yeah. So, Jonathan, what else do we need to know today? You know, I'm 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 sitting down here, you know, with uh, people in red parkas at uh, the Aspen Ideas Festival, and I, you know, I I, I can't be on my phone the whole time. So, you're, what, what you're else do we the, need to know? You're out with the thinkfluencers. Yeah. Right? No. Are, Charlie, are you a thinkfluencer yourself? <sighs> I'm 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 <laughs> I'm I am aspiring to it. Uh, I don't know. You know, it's only noon. I'm sure we'll have we'll have a whole lot more to talk about tomorrow. I by the way, um, I. I really enjoyed Alice Lloyd's piece about on, on the new movie about Mr. Rogers. I, I, I thought maybe it was going to be snarky, but um, apparently it's it's remarkably timely. Um, you know, I, 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 I perhaps uh, I need to go out and see this Mr. Rogers movie. I think that I have not been sufficiently appreciative of of the of the of the seriousness with which he pushed the agenda of of, of kindness and respect, and he seems. Even though he's been gone now for 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 some time, he seems more relevant than ever these days. You know, have you have either of you guys he seen this is, movie? I I have not seen this movie. I am a heavy consumer of Mister Rogers and have been for almost a decade now because I seem to always have a child who's about two years old, uh, which is sort of prime Mister Rogers age. And uh, it is astonishing when you watch the Mister Rogers shows. Uh, how countercultural they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he does a lot of stuff where he like visits a factory where people are making things and talks to farmers and shows you how, I mean, there's a lot of just sort of the now very conservative, you know, blue collar respect, micro dirty jobs type stuff. Uh, but the most countercultural thing about it is just the pace of the show. Um, there are almost no camera cuts. I mean, you can go six minutes at a time without there being a cut from camera one to camera two. Uh, and there are moments when there'll just be dead air, you know, like Mr. Rogers will say, you know, sometimes I just like to be quiet and think, and then he'll be quiet for like 45 seconds on air. And you know, this, you don't realize how, how crazy and weird it is until you like go from Mr. Rogers to then flip on to whatever's on Nickelodeon at the moment, you know, and Everything's frenetic and constantly loud and with a jump cut every seven seconds like it's a Michael Bay movie trailer or something or <laughs> just a Michael so Bay movie. So does it calm you down? Does it calm your children down? Do you actually I mean, you it, watch it because it, it is this countercultural experience? It is, it is uh, hugely calming. I mean, there's the reason hmm. parents love these shows and have for like two generations straight now and why they'll – I think Mr. Rogers will never grow out of vogue because it is, a, it is like giving your kids a, a baby Ativan or something. Uh, but it's it's a tremendous thing. And, and what's so funny about it is I'm certain I, I would bet every last dollar I have that Mr. Rogers himself was a political liberal. I bet he was down with Jimmy mm-hmm. Carter and the nuclear freeze moment and all of that. But in all of the sort of I would say in all of the attitudinal and non-political ways, he's deeply, deeply conservative. Uh, he was a, a very religious guy, and just in the views he took towards work and the dignity of the human person and uh, the sort of pace at which one must live life, uh, deeply conservative. Uh, again, not in the political ways, but in the well, sort of more you know, th- ways. This is something we ought to explore more in depth. The the you know what you're talking about is being deeply conservative in a non-political way because I think we've been caught up in you know the that everything is politics. 
politics. Everything is is partisan, and when, when in fact there is a form of conservatism that is irrelevant to that that blue red divide, the Democrat Republican divide, it's irrelevant to the news cycle. And maybe we need to get back to that. Mr. Last, Mr. Warren, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again. <laughs>